Well, thanks so much for watching Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Porv Gupta, and today we are welcomed by Dr. Stephen Treziak, who is a professor and chair of medicine at Cooper University Healthcare and Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Stephanie and Aperv. Uh, it's a pleasure. You've written several books and most recently Wonder Drug, the first one, Compassionomics. It's about trying to make other people feel that compassion, altruism, other focus. And the first one, Compassionomics, is about the medical system. Then the second book, Wonder Drug, your most recent book, is for the general public, how they can increase that. And it is something that can be learned. So why don't you tell us, how did this become something that was so important to you and something that you think everybody else needs to really get on board with? The way I frame it is like this. Um, I'm not old, but I'm too old to work on anything except the things that matter the most. And when my colleague and co-author, Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli, uh, Dr. Maz, that is, we looked at our surroundings and seeing healthcare workers that were very much burned out and what the research shows quite clearly is that not at our institution specifically, but just uh, globally, that there's a compassion crisis in healthcare. And in our mind, this was the most pressing problem of our time in healthcare in our little corner of the world uh, through our lens of experience. For him, as our uh, as a physician, uh, an emergency physician, and uh, co-CEO of our health system. And for me as a researcher and uh, physician leader, I'm chair of the Department of Medicine here at Cooper. This was really the most pressing problem that we saw uh, around us. And so our approach is to look at uh, familiar things in perhaps unfamiliar ways. So rather than looking uh, in our first project at compassion, uh, and then our second project in serving others, rather than looking at them through a moral or uh, sentimental lens or through a moral ethical lens, we looked at these things through the lens of science uh, because that's our background as researchers. And we synthesized all the scientific evidence to show that compassion for others and serving others matters not just in meaningful ways, but also in measurable ways. And so both of our projects, we, we, we went on a journey through the scientific evidence and synthesized over 250 original science research papers in, in both of these projects. And we uh, found uh, the curated for the reader, the evidence and, and lay it all out so that the reader can make up his or her own mind. Amazing, Stephen. It's it's really quite a journey, especially considering from where you started. And I think at the outset, I think it might be helpful for us to uh, define the terms a little bit more as well, because I found it particularly intriguing in terms of how you talk about empathy versus compassion and, and the challenges of empathy versus the benefits of compassion. So if you don't mind, maybe you can help uh, tease that out a little bit. Most researchers define compassion this way. <clears throat> compassion is an emotional response to another's pain or suffering involving an authentic desire to help. And the operative word there is to help. So it's it's distinctly different from a very closely related word, empathy. 
Empathy is the sensing, detecting, feeling, and understanding another person's pain or suffering. But compassion goes beyond empathy in that it involves taking action to alleviate another person's pain or suffering to whatever extent may be possible. Now, these, these just aren't semantics because there are robust neuroscience data to uh, support the, the distinction in terms. And I, and I should mention that empathy, of course, is vital because if you don't sense, detect, feel, and understand another person's suffering or their struggle, you will miss 100% of your opportunities to respond to those people with compassion. You'll just miss it completely. But neuroscience data using a uh, imaging modality, brain imaging modality called functional MRI. So it shows us what part of the brain is lighting up at, and, and being activated at any particular moment in time. What these data show us is that when you have empathy for others, for example, you bear witness to another person's struggle or their pain or suffering, it actually activates the pain center of the brain. So the saying, I feel your pain, there, there, are, there are neuroscience data to support that. And we all know that experientially as well, because it's very uncomfortable to see another person suffering. But the same um, neuroscience modalities, functional MRI of the brain, show us that when the mind is focused on taking action, to alleviate another person's pain or suffering, it actually activates a distinct neural structure, a different part of the brain. It's not a pain center. It's actually a reward center, a reward center. It's, it's associated with positive feelings, positive affect, positive emotions, feelings of affiliation. And of course, we all know this experientially as well. It's part of the reason why it feels good to help people. If we're talking to a healthcare group and they're saying, okay, well, I am helping people. I am compassionate. Do people inherently think that they're more compassionate? How do they up that? Or do they not even realize? Because, you know, physician burnout is real. Nurse burnout, all of the burnout of people serving those people, they are serving people. They are empathetic. And then they are helping. But is there a way that you can be helping without the compassion? So burnout is real. Uh, burnout is an epidemic. And most of the research has been done in physicians. So I want to be crystal clear. You don't have to be a physician to suffer burnout. Nurse burnout, although studied less, so there are less data to show for it, is obviously very real. But I want to go beyond that. Although most of the research on burnout, or at least over the last 10 years, has focused on the healthcare community, whether it's doctors, nurses, or otherwise, you don't have to be a frontline healthcare worker to feel burned out. You don't even have to be in healthcare. I mean, in on the backside, hopefully, of of a pandemic of you know nearly uh, three years, the message among many that Dr. Maz and I have curated from the scientific literature. So it's not what we think, not what we believe. It's not our opinion. We're certainly not preaching to anyone. But by curating the evidence, you see a very a very distinct signal in the data that serving others can be the best medicine for yourself, that compassion is not just good for patients and for patient care, but also for those who care for patients. 
And so what the research actually points to is that being more compassionate can actually not only protect against burnout by making people more resilient, it can even pull you out of the throes of burnout. And that's actually my experience as well. And that's, that's a story of where really the science meets the personal. Could you expand on that, Stephen? Because I was actually just sure. thinking that you you talk about that uh, in your book mm. uh, in terms of the personal journey. So please uh, help uh, understand that. Absolutely. So I'm an intensivist by background for, for your uh, listeners and viewers that don't know what that is. That's a specialist in intensive care medicine. Um, that's always been a, a fairly uh, unique job. It's it, it was certainly uh, an interesting job over the last few years of the pandemic. Uh, I can assure you. Uh, we often say in our line of work that we routinely meet people and their families on the worst day of their life. And after about twenty years of uh, practicing in the ICU, I came to the stark realization that I had every symptom of burnout myself, every single one. And I can assure you that that can be a dark place. It is, um, uh, it was an experience I wouldn't wish on anybody else. But what I can tell you is that it was more compassion, not less, that actually is what pulled me out of it. And so what I was taught in medical school and, I, and when I say taught, and perhaps you were taught the same thing, Aperf, I was taught this. I, I remember it distinctly as a third-year medical student in the early 1990s. Don't care too much. Don't care too much. Because too much caring, too much compassion burns you out. Now, I believed that dogma for 25 years until I found myself in the throes of burnout. And, and I'm a research nerd by background. So what was I supposed to do? Well, I did the only thing I know how to do. I went to the data. So I went into PubMed, which um, is like the Google for healthcare, for those of you not familiar with PubMed. And where the dogma of the early 90s, when I was beginning my training and, and the what was based on opinion and, and just anecdotes, was now replaced with actual rigorous data. So imagine my surprise when I saw that there are now data to replace that. And when we synthesized all the evidence, and, and this has been studied in systematic reviews and meta-analyses, what is um, what the, the clearest signal is that there is in fact an association between compassion for others and burnout, but it's inverse inverse. So if what I was taught in medical school was true, too much compassion burns you out, you would see high compassion, high burnout, low compassion, low burnout. But the signal uh, of the, the preponderance of evidence in the biomedical literature is inverse. So it's high compassion, low burnout, low compassion, high burnout. So why? Well, my hypothesis after synthesizing all the available evidence, and if there's one thing that Dr. Maz and I have found over the last five years of being engaged in this work, whether it was in Compassionomics for the healthcare community or in Wonder Drug for the general population, what we found was this. The key to resilience is relationships. The key to resilience is relationships. And so when I saw this signal that 
more compassion, not less, was actually potentially protective or therapeutic. I decided very intentionally, and it has to be very intentional, that I was going to care more, not less. I was going to lean in rather than detaching and pulling back because all of the the recommendations for burnout uh, at the time were things like take more vacations, go on nature walks, uh, put on your headphones and do your meditation apps and block out the world. And all of those things are very much uh, isolating uh, experiences, but they certainly weren't practical, like just getting away from my patients as much as possible. Like, how could that be the antidote for my burnout? Uh, it just didn't compute for me because I thought that the antidote had to be at the point of care, not an escape. I, I refer to those other approaches as just escapism, getting away from it and detaching and uncoupling relationships. So I leaned in rather than pulling back. And what flowed from that were deeper relationships, not just with my patients and families in the ICU, but with the nurses that I had been working with for almost 20 years at that point, my colleagues, my trainees, my friends, even at home. And that was when the fog of burnout began to lift for me. And so going by the data, there are probably a lot of people uh, in your viewers and listeners that are feeling burned out right now. And, and I've synthesized, we've synthesized the evidence that caring for others more, not less, and the relationships that flow from that, the human connection that flows from that, that can in fact be the antidote. And so if you're going through burnout, um, I suggest you test the compassion hypothesis for yourself and, and find the people around you that are in need of your compassion and in need of your service and, 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 and just test that hypothesis for yourself. And you might be surprised at the results that you get. You were taught that your third year of medical school, don't care too much. Don't, don't be too compassionate. So how do you now try to go back and reverse decades and decades and decades of people learning this behavior and say, okay, maybe you're, you know, 55 and you're practicing. Let's not do this for the next 10 years. Your next 10 years doesn't have to be like this. How do you do that? Where do you start? And will people believe it? The compassion mindset. Um, and and I choose that that uh, word very carefully, mindset, uh, because so much of it has to do with mindset. And specifically, there are three components. Number one is realizing that there is, in fact, an evidence base for compassion. And when you realize that, and you and, and as I mentioned, 250 original science research papers, they're all curated and, and put in the notes section of, of each of these books. Um, so you can evaluate the evidence for yourself and the strength of the evidence. But once you realize that there is, in fact, evidence behind this um, in, in, in measurable ways, as we say, not just in meaningful ways that these things matter, you think differently uh, about your ability to treat others with compassion and to serve others. You feel differently about it uh, because you're aware of how powerful it can actually be. So the first of the three things is to realize that there is, in fact, an evidence base. Number two is all about time. So we often think that 
being compassionate, if you're in the healthcare domain, treating people with compassion takes up a lot of time. In fact, there was a study in the Journal of General Internal Medicine set now several years back that showed that 56% of the physicians surveyed thought that they didn't have time for compassion. But what the data actually point to is that it only takes 40 seconds in many cases. And, and usually in when we put all the published studies together, less than one minute to make a compassion connection. And some of my colleagues actually um, bristle at that suggestion. They say that, well, there should be no time dimension at all. You can go through your day with brusque efficiency, letting everybody know how busy you are, how busy you think you are, or you can treat everybody with compassion and kindness. And if someone held a stopwatch to you, it really wouldn't make a difference at all. The third part is realizing that change is possible. Now, I didn't, I didn't used to think that. Uh, I used to think that people were either wired for compassion and kindness, or they were not. But when you look at the scientific evidence, it's not true. What the evidence shows quite clearly is that compassionate behaviors can, in fact, be learned. And that's not true just in the healthcare domain, but definitely in, 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 the, in the broad sense for the general population through dozens of articles uh, published in peer-reviewed journals in, in the psychological domain. And so we can, in fact, get better at compassion. But here's the key. We have to believe that we can, because many of your viewers and readers have probably heard of the concept of a growth mindset uh, popularized by all the wonderful research and, and a book from Dr. Carol Dweck and others at Stanford University. If we believe that change is possible, then it is. If we have a fixed mindset instead of a growth mindset and a fixed mindset believing that compassion and kindness for others and serving others, these are traits rather than skills that we can learn and get better at. If you believe it's a trait, you'll never put in the extra effort to get better at compassion, especially when compassion is hard. And what a lot of people don't know about Dr. Dweck's work is that she, she and her colleagues have also studied this for compassion as well. And they found the exact same thing. We have to have a growth mindset. We have to look at our skills with human connection as skills, not traits. And if we do that, we will be more likely to work at them, especially when compassion is hard and we can in fact get better. And so I didn't used to believe that, um, but now I see the evidence and because I, I see it now, I see it now, I work and my compassion for others, just like I work at all my other skills in the ICU, just like I work on my skills for central venous catheterization or pulmonary artery catheterization or endotracheal intubation. I work on my compassion for my patients and their families, but not just them, for my colleagues, my coworkers, the staff, the technicians, my trainees, everybody. And um, if we're going to be evidence-based about it, science shows quite clearly that change is in fact possible. I'm just blown away at this day and age that we are able to study the intention behind someone's action. 
and that that intention is ultimately what matters. I mean, we kind of learned this. It's sort of from our mothers and, and, and school in sort of a general goodwill sort of a way. But what you're telling us is really, this is what the science is now able to show, is that the way in which you perform an action, maybe to St Stephanie's earlier question of, hey, we're all physicians, we're all trying to help, everybody's helping, but they may not be all helping with the same intention of compassion. And somehow science has been able to elucidate that. So I'm wondering if you could maybe in, in, my, in this kind of final segment for me anyway, shed some light a little bit on how does science really help us learn that intention is such a critical element of the, of the function? Well, much of the answer relates to the fact that we do have a burnout crisis in healthcare and the evidence that um, caring more, not less is actually associated with less burnout. And so that association is there. We are currently doing more research to test how it is that um, more human connection can actually reduce the experience of burnout and the risk of burnout. You mentioned intention and being intentional about it. And it sort of brings up the question about motives, right? And some people often ask me, um, what if I'm not feeling it in the moment, right? Like, what if I'm just not feeling like I can get there emotionally? And there was a paper published in JAMA, that's the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, about 10 years back now, that talks about emotional labor in the healthcare field. And emotional labor is a concept that was taken from the uh, from service industries like uh, customer call centers and luxury hotels and things like that. And what the authors of this JAMA paper suggested is that this applies to us as well in healthcare, where we don't always feel it in the moment. But if we use the extra effort to intentionally get there somehow, um, it can be very effective. And what they, the example they gave is, and, and now some uh, clinicians may bristle at what I'm about to suggest, but just give me, a, just stick with me, okay? They use the uh, analogy of method acting, right? So, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis or Heath Ledger uh, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in Batman uh, playing the Joker. Method actors actually become their character, right? And um, similarly, when we use intention to get there, emotion is real. It's just that we had to make that mental switch to try to get there. And what the example that I use, and, and I, I use this in, in contrast of, you know, quote unquote, faking. I'm not suggesting that anybody fakes kindness or compassion for other people. But people do this all the time, right? If, if, for example, those of you who have kids, they people do this all the time. You come home from a day at work, completely wrung out, stressed out about work deadlines or your boss or whatever it is. And the last thing that you want to do perhaps is treat anyone with compassion and your small child sees you come home and wants it to be story time, right? Well, what do you do? You uh, embrace the moment, 
and you talk to your child in story time and you speak in soothing tones that are comforting and make your child feel at ease and allays whatever fears they might be having. Is that faking? It's not faking. It's love. It's just that you intentionally had to get there in your mind because you had to flip the switch to put your day behind you or whatever was stressing you out and be present in the moment for your child. All the emotion, all the effort, the, the emotional labor, so to speak, it's all real. It's all genuine. But you had to consciously flip the switch to get there. Mm -hmm. So similarly, sometimes in healthcare, we have to do that. I have a colleague who has one of the busiest, craziest cardiology practices I've ever been in. It's one of the most hectic places because there's so many patients and there's so much activity. And what, although that could be very stressful, the moment that he puts his hand on the doorknob to go into the patient's room to meet that patient, he's been doing it now for decades, so he doesn't even uh, consciously do it. But what he does is he switches all of those things off and he says, for the next 20 minutes or however long I'm going to be in that room with that patient, my only job is to make them feel like they're the only person in the world. That's it. And interestingly, that's not only why his patients love him, it's why he loves his job. It is that that practice of making his patient feel like that they're the only person in the world where outside the exam room door. There are a hundred stressors waiting for him when he leaves the room. For that time frame, he makes them believe that they're the only person in the world. And he does it very intentionally. And so uh, whether we call it emotional labor or we use analogies from method acting, we often very intentionally have to make a mental switch. And if we do that and we get the real, as the evidence that Dr from Dr. Maz and I and, and our journey through the evidence, what the research shows is if we do that and we get the relationships that flow from that, not only will our patients be better off, but we will too. On that note, what has your personal transformation been like then? Because it sounds like you were really in a terrible place and then you've discovered all of these things, you've made these changes, you've learned how to turn those switches off. And so what have you seen on your end living this life? So I was fully in the throes of burnout at one point in my career. And, and I should say that recovery from burnout or anything for that matter is typically not linear, right? It goes up and down. But I'm aware of the evidence that in 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 deepening the relationships that I have, whether it's with patients and families, colleagues, coworkers, anybody, that that is where uh, I'm going to be feeling the best. Uh, that's what I focus on. I And now I'm involved in this research, in this work, and that's very fulfilling to me. So I was at a point where I was uh, trapped in burnout uh, because, you know, I, I, I didn't really know what to do. And now uh, I have a job I absolutely love. I love uh, uh, being in medicine more than I ever have before. And, um, you know, for a research nerd, uh, I guess I owe it all to the science. Thank you so much for being here and sharing that story. And hopefully others can learn from this and use your framework 
to realize that this is something they can implement and experience themselves because it certainly sounds like a better way. So we really appreciate the conversation. It's my pleasure, Stephanie and Aperv. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you, Stephen. It just feels like it must be such a, a wonderfully satisfying uh, professionally and personally for you. So thank you so much for sharing that uh, with us. The pleasure is all mine. And thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.